All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. We got two great guests for you right now. Uh, Margaret Klein Solomon is the co-founder and director of Climate Mobilization. She's also written a book, uh, Facing the Climate Emergency: How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. And also joining us, Adam McKay, who's on the advisory board of the Climate Mobilization, and he's also was the head writer for Saturday Night Live, uh, co-wrote the films Anchorman, Talladega Nights, the other uh, guys, Big Short, The Vice. We could be here all day. Okay. So, um, welcome both of you. Um, uh, let me start with you, Margaret, on what is climate mobilization? The Climate Mobilization is an advocacy organization that calls for World War II scale mobilization of our economy and society in response to the climate emergency. And we do a variety of campaigns based on the idea that we as a society need to confront the truth of how advanced the climate emergency is in order to be able to mount an effective response. And Adam, uh, what's your sense of how much the media recognizes how advanced it is? You know, I think it's gotten better in the past three or four years, but I ultimately feel like our media, as it's constituted now, isn't equipped to deal with the enormity of this issue. It just doesn't fit into any kind of box of ratings and advertising and kind of the pleasant hue that rests under 90% of our media. So, you know, that's what drew me to the work that Margaret's doing with her group is I really felt like they had the proper footing. They were, they were addressing this as an imperative, an actual emergency, as opposed to one of a coterie of issues to be talked about by candidates. Yeah, Adam, let me uh, stay on with you, uh, for, with you for a second. Uh, you know, the other day I was just thinking, one of the issues is that if if it takes two steps to get to anything, the media's out. Um, you know, corruption, well, the person gets the money, the campaign contributions, et cetera, and then they do something bad. Oh, man, I got to explain that I'm out, right? And, and it feels like, uh, whereas, like, uh, they are covering George Floyd's story, which is great. Uh, very, very important because police brutality in this country is so overwhelming, so uh, real, and, and, and must be addressed. But it's one step. You can see it. You see the guy dies on camera, right? Um, does climate change have that problem, Adam, that it's two steps? That, oh, okay, we're putting all this carbon in the air. That leads to climate change. And then we know that it's causing extreme weather, but... For the media, they then have to say, maybe we have more severe hurricanes because of it, et cetera. Is that a huge part of the problem here? Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to the fact that most of our culture is based on selling. We live in a constant culture of, you know, you have to make the customer feel right. So the comparison would be that if you went into like an Abercrombie and Fitch or a you know, department store, and they were blaring Metallica when you walked through the front door and right away the salesman told you, you know, we're all gonna die. Life can be a dark place. Now would you like to buy some shoes? So I think just the kind of scope of the story is so dramatic and so dire. And like Margaret says, really the closest comparisons we have are like the eruption of Krakatoa and World War II and most of the news nowadays is about the commercials and they have to kind of stay in this half balance of like 
being pleasant or entertaining, even with the story you're seeing now in Minneapolis, you've got footage of riots, you've got drama going on, you can sell that. And like you said, with uh, global warming, it's, it is still somewhat abstract. You're right, there's some steps to connect it and they're not pleasant steps. But we need to be chewing through these purposes of selling and having shows that get viewers. You know, you wouldn't say we're not going to announce that Zero's just bombed Hawaii because that's a bummer story and we want to go to Dinah Shore singing some songs. You do it because it has to be done. Uh, and the, really, the first time I started hearing that tone in an organization was Margaret's group. There's some other great groups out there that have done amazing work, but I happen to connect with Margaret's group first, and they really get that. Yeah. Uh, although I'm a little different. So if you told me uh, that there's an existential threat and we don't have uh, long to live, I'd buy a lot of sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I do like Metallica, don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, Margaret, you're a climate psychologist. What does that mean? It means I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, you know, doing one-on-one -on -one therapy, earning my PhD in New York City when I started to have uh, increasing amount of climate anxiety and really uh, terror. And I realized that though I loved being a therapist, it's a wonderful career. Um, it, it just, you know, helping one person at a time isn't gonna cut it during this just absolute global catastrophe. So I switched my focus to, let's say, doing therapy on the whole world uh, or as many people as possible because we're, we're acting totally um, insane and suicidal at, at the moment. And so, so I think some of the tools of psychotherapy um, can be just what we need. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, there's a couple of angles here. One is how people are coping, which you deal with, uh, but also the fact that we've lost our minds collectively. Uh, you know, Adam and I, in, in a previous interview, were talking about if all the scientists in the world told us a meteor was going to hit, we wouldn't be like, ah, whatever, who cares, right? On right. the other hand, now having lived through coronavirus, we might. <laughs> you know, now you, that all the scientists in the world could tell you to wear a mask, and if Trump says don't, you might not. So what, what do you make of this collective insanity of not wanting to deal with something that, is, that literally every scientist is saying is definitely coming and is already here and is going to devastate us? Right. So there are several really important factors. Obviously, there's the multi-billion dollar campaign of lies and misinformation waged very successfully by the fossil fuel industry. But there's so I mean, it's always important to, to remember that this this kind of mass denial didn't just happen. It was paid for. But but so what that denial campaign and the media silence have allowed to happen is a pluralistic ignorance, or you could say like a whole culture of denial in which people look at each other and say, well, my neighbor is acting normal and my brother's acting normal and my friends and colleagues, they're all, that, they're all going about their lives and planning their families and their careers and their retirements and their vacations. And it, 
gives people the terribly false impression that that things are fine because because people evaluate risk socially, not rationally. So we have this, um, yeah, kind of vortex of uh, normal, no, it's living our lives as normal while the biosphere is just collapsing. So, Adam, what do you think the average person should be doing? I mean, it, it's it, we are in this bizarre situation where we literally have an existential threat, uh, not like a hyperbole, not something politicians made up, uh, and we're all going on with our lives as if it's not going to happen or it's not already happening. So I know what a politician can do. I know what the government can do. But what can an individual do to react to that? What I love about Margaret's book is that's the level she takes it to. It's very easy for us to walk around and be saying, can you believe these people are denying science? How can they be this dumb? And why is this happening? But I think until this discussion is framed, as you're, as you're doing, in a personal context, you have to picture someone who's at a family barbecue and everyone at the barbecue is denying global warming, not talking about it. And what does that person need inside of themselves to be the person that brings it up, knowing that they're going to be shot down, knowing that they're going to be countered? Maybe it's even a barbecue where people acknowledge global warming, but it's a bummer conversation. How do you cross that line personally? And I honestly think, yes, there's a lot of activist work that needs to happen. We need to get politicians in who fully acknowledge the scope of this catastrophe, but the real change is going to happen the way real change always happens, and it's going to happen inside of each person. So you know, Margaret does a great job of kind of laying out the steps in this book, which is why I really think it's going to become like a manual over the next 5, 10, 20 years of how to acknowledge this, how to stop being in denial, how to feel the feelings that come with this recognition and then how to get your feet back on the ground and be in a position of action. Margaret, as my seven-year-old daughter says, now I don't want to spoil the beans uh, and, and have you give away all the steps, but generally speaking, what should people do in their personal lives uh, that, that you talk about in the book? So the five steps that I recommend are, number one, face climate truth, which is our civilization is headed straight for a collapse. Droughts causing food shortages, causing mass migration and chaos. You know, this is this is a sinking ship and we need to totally turn it around. So that's step one. Step two is to welcome your fear, grief, and other painful feelings. Because the truth is really deeply terrifying and horrible. And to take it in and to respond to it, we need to feel it emotionally. We can't just think it. Step three is to reimagine your life story. This, I challenge readers to think, what if everything in my life was actually leading up to this moment and this challenge? What if this is why I'm here at this critical juncture in history? Step four is to understand and enter emergency mode. 
That's the idea that when the house is on fire or there's something imminently threatening your safety and life and your family's life, you act differently, right? Normal stops and you enter emergency mode. The whole country entered emergency mode in World War II when we converted our economy from a consumer economy to a war economy in just a few years. But individuals and social movements can also enter this mode. So then step five is join the climate emergency movement. And this is to your question, what should I do? People need to go through that emotional process that I described in order to get to that final step where you say, okay, this, this emergency is happening. It's unfolding faster than anyone knew. And I am going to take responsibility for stopping this. I'm going to do everything I can. And that includes, like Adam said, talk to everyone. Don't shut up about this. Being quiet, as Larry Kramer, the famous activist and ACT UP said, silence equals death. So we have to get through our, the awkwardness and talk about it. But beyond that, join this movement. Join Extinction Rebellion or the Sunrise Movement or the school strikers or the climate mobilization and one of the organizations that's led over 1,500 local governments to declare a climate emergency. Right. All right, everybody. Uh, the book is called uh, Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. The organization is Climate Mobilization, Margaret Klein-Salomon and Adam McKay. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. Back on the conversation. We've got a great guest for you guys. Uh, we got Sunlise Lopez. She's running for Congress in New York's 15th district. This is a very winnable district. Uh, and she's a wonderful progressive. My God, I, I don't think I could read all these qualifications, but uh, she's been uh, endorsed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, I think you guys might remember her. Uh, and uh, Democratic Socialists and Working Families Party and Sunrise, and the list goes on and on. She's co-founded several groups, uh, Local Democrats of New York, Bronx Progressives, and the list goes on. Welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. Uh, thank you for saying that. All right, so you got a great uh, and interesting race uh, there. The incumbent you worked for at one point is retiring. Uh, how many folks you got in that race, 12 or 15? Because the Democratic primary is going to decide the winner. Right, no, it definitely you know fluctuates. I mean, it's about like 14, 15. Um, and like you said, I used to work for outgoing Congressman Jose Serrano, who's actually one of the most left-leaning progressives in all of Congress. And he co-founded Medicare for All um, and all that good stuff. And he was one of the first um, ever elected into public office uh, back in the day. So I think that the way that he led this community, it's like a revolutionary uh, uh, history that we have here in the Bronx, and he really honored that. And I think that this district particularly is ready for this kind of revolutionary leadership that we want to bring. We are basically taking inspiration from movements like the Young Lords, the Black Panthers, and you know we're centering the needs of the community and everything um, that we do, and we're leading with love and compassion. And we're just trying to listen, especially in light of what's happening with the coronavirus. We're making a lot of mutual aid calls. 
into the community and figuring out who's hungry, um, who needs groceries and things like that. And we're fighting for a homes guarantee, universal child care and single payer health care for all. Yeah. So uh, your race in a lot of ways reminds me of AOC's race. Uh, I remember when uh, we were inside her apartment (laughs) very nearby uh, and Emma did the story from there. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, she was running against that establishment figure with uh, progressive backing, and, and you're similar. And I, I didn't know the storied history of that district. Uh, I read it uh, when I was researching it. Um, I know you don't like to talk about that it's the poorest uh, district in the country, but that's relevant, of course, because there's a lot of marginalized folks, unrepresented folks, et cetera. And, uh, but I didn't know Black Panthers came out of there. I didn't know Young Lords came out of there. Now we got young lords and young Turks in there, uh, so we're all good. Uh, but who are, who are the this the establishment folks running against you? I don't care about their names so much, uh, but like, what are their roles and and how's the Democratic Party dealing with that? Right. So there's a lot of elected officials that are running for the seat. Um, most of them are corporate Democrats. So there's two kinds of Democrats running in this race. One is a Republican in Democratic clothing who is anti-women's rights, anti-LGBTQIA, anything that you can imagine. He drove Tred Cruz here in the Bronx when he was running for president uh, back in 2016. So you have that individual. And then the rest of the people that are running that are elected officials are corporate Democrats in the sense that they're taking huge amounts of money from real estate developers, pharmaceutical companies, charter schools to finance their campaign. And uh, that's basically like, you know, where we are, you know? Um, And in terms of the campaign that we're running, we have been intentional about rejecting real estate developer funding um, and oppressive funding. And our campaign is fueled by small grassroots dollar donations. Over 80% of our donations are funded that way. People give a dollar to our campaign, $20, $30, $5. And we encourage that because it's basically about giving people a sense of ownership over the political process. Um, so we're really happy with the way that we fundraise. We actually lead in the entire field in terms of the individual amount of uh, small grassroots dollar donations that we have. So we're very fortunate. And uh, a lot of our donations come from the district. So we lead in district donations and Bronx donations and donations all over the country. Um, So, you know, we're mounting a very competitive challenge and we're proud of the way that we're funding. So I know you don't take any corporate PAC money and and you're uh, people powered. So where can people give uh, money or volunteer for you? They can go to lopezforthepeople.com to check us out. And if you go to our website, you will see that we've been intentional about prioritizing language justice. So the district that I'm running is is 97% black and brown. Uh, It's predominantly people of color. And there's people here from all over the world. So the diversity of the district is our strength. So if you go to our website, you'll not only see that it's in English, it's in Spanish, it's in French, it's in Bangla, and it's in Arabic as well. Um, because we wanted to be respectful of the diversity that's here so that they can get a sense of what our platform is. And we just thought it was, you know, a great way of uh, just like reaching out to people and letting them know that we see them and that we respect their culture. Um, Because cultural organizing is something that's really important to me because we're experiencing a gentrification and a displacement crisis in this community. And cultural organizing is... uh, 
amazing because it's basically saying, you know, we see you and we're going to, you know, respect like what you bring to the community. Um, so we're really proud of our website. Yeah. Lopezforthepeople.com. All right. Um, Lopezforthepeople.com. I like it. So uh, now, uh, has the Democratic Party been neutral? Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. So how's it been in that race? Well, to my knowledge, no one has endorsed anybody publicly, but, you know, who knows? All I know is that in terms of our campaign, we have garnered a lot of grassroots progressive endorsements from the likes of AOC, who you just mentioned, Zephyr Teachow, Tiffany Kabang, who ran for Queens District Attorney last year, the Working Families Party's behind us. And I got to get a huge, huge shout out to my brothers and sisters from the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm so honored to have their support. And if I win this race, they will be um, people that I bring with me to Washington in terms of organizing, in terms of uh, creating policy um, and continuing this political revolution. So I'm really excited with the support that we're getting on the ground and we're expecting additional endorsements um, you know, in the next uh, upcoming day. So we're really excited about it. And how's the media coverage been? Because oftentimes the media leans in towards people that already have power. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's deeply frustrating because, of course, the original thesis of journalism is to challenge uh, the people in, in power, but they often mm -hmm. do otherwise. But I don't know the specifics of your race. How's it been there? It's been a slow trickle. I mean, I have to give a huge shout out to the independent um, that has been instrumental in covering our campaign. And I think it's really important for grassroots candidates like myself to support independent media. And the corporate media, for instance, like there was an article on Newsweek the other day that was framing the race. And they said, oh, oh like there's an anti-AOC person running in the 15th congressional district, um, you know, his name is Ruben Diaz Sr. And they basically like gave him a lot of free coverage. And even the in this race, they did not mention me at all. So then we basically like, you know, called them out on Twitter and we we're like, listen, we're trying to race a fully homeless Latina woman um, from this conversation. And uh, those are unfortunately sometimes the fights that you have to wage so that you can be heard and seen. And that's something that happens a lot to people here in the Bronx. Um, so we wanted to stand up to that corporate media bias and put them on notice. And then I took the opportunity to amplify the independent media space that had already like reached out to us for interviews. And then I said, you know, this is why it's important to support independent media, especially when it comes to grassroots candidates that are running for the first time. All right, rock and roll, love it. Uh, yeah. So, um, so uh, and then I wanted to ask you about your experience because, you know, I see, look, all those progressive groups and progressive folks aren't backing you because you ain't progressive. You are. Uh, Green New Deal, Medicare mm -hmm. for All, housing, et cetera. Um, and, and, I, and I know your background, you just mentioned it, you were homeless when you were a kid and were in a shelter, got a second chance in the Bronx. It's an amazing story. But uh, fill in the middle there for us. It's, you know, I, you went to Barnard, uh, which is part of Columbia. You went to NYU. What did you do after that? Uh, what was it uh, that you did as work as a community organizer? Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because the reason I've devoted my life to social justice and community organizing is because of my experiences living in the shelter, watching my mom work in sweatshops to make ends meet. Um, 
and watching her and her coworkers be exploited. So those were my earliest memories when I was growing up. And that's why I dedicated myself to community organizing, to building affordable housing. So for the past 10 years of my life, I haven't only been organizing for housing justice, I've also built buildings in the community and learned how to finance uh, you know, and acquire sites and build buildings for people that were once in my situation when I was growing up, living in the streets, living in a shelter system. So everything that I've decided to do in my life is really informed by my direct lived experiences with everything that happened to my family. And unfortunately, my experiences aren't unique because the 15th congressional district uh, being the poorest in the country, there's so many people that are experiencing the same things and not only in the South Bronx, but all over the country. Um, and I went to college, like you said, I graduated, I interned for uh, Congressman Jose Serrano, and I was uh, in the National Association of Latino Elected Officials. And through that experience, I learned about community organizing, I learned about community boards, I learned about the environmental housing, the environmental justice space here in the community that's really, really strong. And, uh, you know, I made a lot of connections and I learned a lot of valuable lessons that I I'm still applying to this day. But then unfortunately, what inspired me to move on from Serrano's office was that I was seeing that there were a lot of people that were struggling with homelessness and I would help them get what's called a one-shot deal, which is a grant from the welfare office so that they can stay in their apartments. And then I would notice that the same people six months, seven months down the road would come back to the office to basically like get more help. So I was like, I'm not really making a dent in the affordable housing um, world. So I left and that's why I ended up getting a master's in urban planning with a focus in community housing development. And then I dedicated the last 10 years of my life to building housing in the Bronx and in New York City. All right. Uh, listen, I want to tell the audience, uh, it is so important for you to support uh, candidates that do not take those corporate PAC uh, contributions and that are boldly and unapologetically progressive. And clearly you've got one here. So uh, and the website is, is uh, indicative, lopezforthepeople.com. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for running this race and having the courage. I know how hard it is. Mm -hmm. Having the courage to run and to run against uh, the machine. Uh, so we're here to back mm -hmm. you. We're here for it. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck in the race. And it's right around the corner. So what, what do we got now? It's on June 23rd. So people got to come out. People have to help us phone bank, make some calls for us. We have people from the United Kingdom and Britain helping us make calls. We have an international movement helping us with our campaign. Um, so we can really win this. And it's going to take the progressive space to really come through and support us so that we can bring this home. Um, so I hope that you can check us out at lopezforthepeople.com. All right. Perfect. Thank you for joining us again. Go get them. Okay, thank you.